0: Hey, welcome to Kingsway Caringbah. We are a community inspired by love to live differently. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. It's so great to have you with us. We pray this teaching will inspire you, build your faith, and lead you to a life of fullness and freedom in Jesus. Enjoy the message. scripture by way of introduction and our promise this morning. Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 11, he found them in a desert land, in an empty howling wasteland. He surrounded them and he watched over them, and he guarded them as he would guard his own eyes, like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young. So he spread his wings to take them up, and he carried them safely on his pinions. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope, who wait upon, who trust in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run weary. They will walk and not be faint. Father, would you wash us with your word again this morning? Would you renew us in your presence as we wait upon you this morning? Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are so incredibly kind. Amen. Amen. Would you take a seat? I just read to you our passage and promise for this morning. And I want you to get your scuba diving mask on because I want to go deep. I want to dive deep this morning, so I'm going to jump straight in. And this promise today is written by the disciples of the Hebrew Hebrew prophet Isaiah to the Israelites during the Babylonian exile, while they are waiting in their wilderness, in their exile, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Jess did a brilliant job helping us understand the context of what was happening for the Israelites as their temple was destroyed, and they were forced into this season of exile. So I'm not going to go through all of that again. If you didn't hear it, go back, watch it. It was incredible. But I do want to talk to you about this book of Isaiah and where this passage fits in its context. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are believed to be written by Isaiah, and they warn of God's judgment if the people choose to place their trust in anything else but God, particularly in the secular rulers, rather than God. But from chapter 40, and of importance to us today, the book makes a significant turn to focus instead on the promise and hope of redemption, and it announces the imminent action of God to deliver the people of Israel. Right at the end of Isaiah, from chapter 56 onward, it deals with the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the city and the temple. So we're kind of right in the middle place of that book this morning. You know, and as the Hebrew prophets look back, and as Jeremiah did when Jess spoke and as Isaiah does, they look back and they see that this current time of exile for the Israelites, is in fact mirroring, mirroring, I can't say that word, it's like a mirror, to the original exodus of their ancestors from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And as they look at what's going on in the external reality, they discern a deeper reality about God that applies all throughout the biblical story right here to you and me today. That we have a God who is personally concerned with our liberation and the liberation of his world. We all have our own exodus journeys designed to take us from our personal Egypts through the wilderness or times of exile into our promised land. Being saved or becoming a Christian is less to do with securing our eternal destination after we die, and much more about experiencing freedom in the love, grace, and presence of God on earth right here and now, today. If we zoom in on chapter 40, the promise that I read to you, in verse 31 is the last verse of the whole chapter and it's this incredible chapter in which God is presented in two ways and I'm going to read it's long but I I, I was not going to read it I was going to summarize it but I can't do it because it is so good that you just need to be washed with this this morning this is how it says your God this is how it starts your God says to you comfort Comfort my people with gentle, compassionate words. Speak tenderly from the heart to revive those in Jerusalem. God is speaking tenderly to revive this morning. And proclaim that their warfare is over. Her debt of sin is paid for and she will not be treated as guilty. Prophesy to her that she has received from the hand of Yahweh twice as many blessings as all of her sins. A thunderous voice cries out in the wilderness Prepare the way for Yahweh's arrival, make a highway straight for the desert. Through the desert for our God, every valley will be raised up and every mountain brought low. The rugged terrain will become level ground and the rough places a plain. Then Yahweh's radiant glory will be unveiled and all humanity will experience it together. Believe it, for Yahweh has spoken his degree. A voice cries out. It says, cry out and ask. I ask, what should I say? And all the people are as frail as grass and their elegance is like a wilting wildflower. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. The people are just like grass. But even though grass withers and flower fades, the word of God stands strong forever. Proclaim good news, go up on the high mountain, you joyful messages of Zion, and lift up, your voices with power. You who proclaim joyous news to Jerusalem, shout it out and don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So it starts with this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's tenderness. A little bit further down it says, he will care for you as a shepherd tends his flock gathering the weak lambs and taking them in his arms. He carries them close to his heart and gently leads those that have young. This reality of God's kindness, though, is contrasted with his power. Look, here comes Lord Yahweh as a victorious warrior. He triumphs with his awesome power, Watch as he brings with him his reward, reward and the spoils of victory to give to his people. Who has measured the waters of the sea in the hollow of his hand and used his handwidth to mark off the heavens? Who knows the exact weight of all the dust of the earth and has weighed all the mountains and hills on his scale? Who fully understands the spirit of Yahweh or is wise enough to counsel him? Whom does he consult to be enlightened? Who teaches him the ways of justice? Who imparts knowledge to him or shows him the truth path of wisdom? Even the nations are to him like a drop in a bucket, regarded as nothing more than dust on a scale. He picks up the islands like fine grains of sand. All of Lebanon's trees are not enough firewood for him, nor are all of its animals enough for a burnt offering. The nations are nothing in his eyes. Idols cannot be compared to God. Who even comes close to being compared to God? Don't you realize that God is the creator? Don't you hear the truth? Haven't you been told this from the beginning? Haven't you understood this since he laid a firm foundation for the earth? He sits enthroned high above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreading it open like a tent to live in. He reduces rulers to nothing and makes the elite of the earth as nothing at all. They barely get planted and barely take root in their position of power when the Lord blows on him and they wither away, carried off like straw in the stormy wind. The Holy One asks, Can you find anything or anyone that compares to me? Lift up your eyes to the sky and see for yourself who do you think created the cosmos? Why then, O Jacob's tribes, would you ever complain? And my chosen Israel, why would you say, Yahweh isn't paying attention to me, to my situation? And he's lost all interest in what happens to me. So easy and normal to lose perspective in the midst of wilderness and exile and middle places. But here the prophet says to us, don't you know, Haven't you been listening? Yahweh is the one and only everlasting God, the creator of all you see and imagine. And he never gets weary or worn out. And his intelligence is unlimited. And he's never puzzled over what to do. He empowers the feeble and he infuses the powerless with increasing strength. Even young people faint and get exhausted. All of us stumble and fall. But those who wait for Yahweh's grace will experience divine strength. They will rise up on soaring wings and fly like eagles and run their race without growing weary and walk through life without giving up. He is deeply kind, but he is not tame. He has both the will, but also the power to redeem his people, to redeem his world, to redeem anything that you or I are facing or walking through. So his people are promised that they will have an experience, renewed strength and energy, and liberating freedom. Like the eagle that they would have glimpsed way up in the sky, soaring above them from their reality of exile, they too will soon be liberated from the empower, and the experience that is now limiting and confining them. And the exiles, God's people, are called to faith in the very midst of the humiliation of their everyday experience of exile. And how is that faith to look? How is it to be manifested? It's to be manifested as waiting. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. It seems that the appropriate response to the power and the greatness of God is not to do anything in one's own strength, but to wait for him and to expect him to act in accordance with his deep kindness and his steadfast love. Seems pretty simple. Yet I remember very, very few messages or training sessions or discipleship courses in how to wait well. I don't know if anyone else has ever been trained in waiting Done the 101, how to wait on God, kind of comes out of people's mouths. We say it from up here all the time, just wait on the Lord. What do you mean? How do I do that? What does it look like? And that's what I want to dive deep into today. I've sat with God on this for a couple of weeks, and much longer than that really, but I hope there is something in this that sticks for you today. Let everything else fall away. what does it mean to wait on god well the dictionary definition which is where i always like to start says that to wait is to delay action to stay in one place without doing very much until someone comes or something happens i thought that was profound <laughs> we could probably stop there anyway we're we'll gone the prophet Isaiah. What did he have in mind when he spoke about waiting for the Lord? There's three Hebrew words that are used for the word "wait." The one that is relevant to us is the Hebrew word. And I don't know how to say it, but it's QWH. I don't know. You know it, and it carries with it a sense of hope, but also a sense of tension. The tension of waiting and hoping for something which has not yet come about. The tension of living with unfilled hope is the tension between absence and presence. Waiting is enduring this tension while refusing to abandon the hope of presence, even when the sense of absence is overwhelming. What are we to wait for? We're to wait for God's action, which is His deeds, His activity, but also for God's presence, God Himself. Wait for someone to turn up or something to happen. And actually, the two can't really be separated. When we speak of God as the living presence, We refer to a God who is not just alive and with us, but who is also active in operation. A God who acts through human weakness rather than human strength. In fact, Dave and I were talking this week about how our liabilities are often the... that our liabilities in our lives that have often been the source of our shame become the seat of God's presence and gifting or anointing in our lives. You know, God, this year has been affirming in me the gift of spiritual sight, of discernment. Actually, even last week, FOSA came up after the service and blessed me with a prayer that was just that. But the thing that is so unlikely and so ridiculous about that is that my eyes are the source of deep-seated shame in my life. I was born with bilateral squints, and that means that I have a visual processing issue that results in things like not being able to see in 3D, not having depth perception, not having peripheral vision, And I had surgery, so you don't know that that's going on because my eyes are nice and straight now. But it's still my reality that I navigate all of the time. So for God to come to me and to say, the thing that has caused you to feel so much shame, so much inadequacy, that's made you feel weak and not enough and incompetent, That is the place of my gifting is going to sit in your life. He chooses the unlikely people and he acts through human weakness. He's also a God that's not random. He's surprising, he'll surprise you all the time, but he's not random. He acts according to his counsel and wisdom and to his plan and greater purpose. Sometimes we only have a glimpse of it, but he's not random. He's very intentional. So to wait for and depend on the action of God is to acknowledge God's freedom to act in ways of his choosing in his own time, and to look for his hand at work in the small and vulnerable and powerless. So how do we wait? How do we actually do it? What do we do if waiting is doing nothing? Firstly, I want to say that to wait is to abandon our own initiative and surrender our own efforts to control events. (sighs) Abandon our own initiative and surrender our own efforts to control events. You know, we live in such urgent days, don't we? Everything's got to be done now, decided today, and you have to be sure of it. But I think the words, I don't know, and I'm not sure, and I need help are the cries that the Holy Spirit is listening for across the earth. Because that's the person that's making space for God. I was challenged uh, earlier this year that what would it look like for me to, to, to shift from having to figure it out today or make a decision now or get closure on that this week to asking myself, when is the last possible moment I need to decide or act on that? How long can I hold it open for God before I get in the way? And once I've made a decision, can I make room to rest that decision and allow God to either affirm it or close the door on it. Waiting on God is about delaying action. But it's not about delaying expectation. Waiting on God is looking for the activity and grace of God, learning to recognize his secret, hidden, behind the scenes work in external events but even more so in the hearts of people. What are the patterns and repeated themes that you can see around you, in the world, in the lives of people, in your own life? What invitations and interactions are bringing a sense of life and energy and freedom to me? Because surely that's what God's about. These are the kinds of things we've got to be looking and watching for. To wait on God is to learn to embrace the middle place. In the Psalms, waiting is the middle place between plea and praise, between the cry for help and the rescue. The middle place. The place of waiting is a time of receptivity, of openness to God that allows for his deep work within us. And this waiting, this middle place is deeply personal and it's accompanied by different emotions. I mean, if we look at the Psalms, sometimes we see people who are waiting in protest They are crying out to God with honest frustration and anger. Why God? How long? And you know what? God isn't afraid of protest. In fact, he invites us to the spiritual practice of lament. Share your grief with me. Share your frustration with me. Share your pain with me. Then we see people who are thirsty, who are kind of consumed with a passionate yearning and longing. And there's an invitation to God, sit with me, stir up your desire. Where's your holy discontent? What's bringing you undone? Let's talk about it. And then there are people that go quiet, people that wait in a humble and trustful acceptance and dependence. You know, there's that time after we've done the protesting and after we've done the yearning that God says, now be still, be quiet, close your mouth, don't say anything else, be silent and wait and watch for me. None of these postures are wrong, all of them a part of the process of waiting. And often we cycle through all of them or God invites us to one or another. Sometimes it feels like we spend more time in the waiting than in the arriving. I don't know if anyone ever else feels like that. I think we thought that the Christian life was going to be about the arriving. It's really about the waiting. But here is the best thing. We can take courage, dear hearts, because he's in the waiting. He's always in the waiting. Now, I said to you that the prophets look back to explain what's happening now, but their words also speak forward. And this theme of waiting is picked up by Paul in Romans 8. And I want to read a little bit of it, and I want you to just sit there, close your eyes, let it wash over you again. Dave actually read from this passage about a month ago, and I think many people resonated with the sense of creation groaning. We're all groaning. So listen to this. The solution is life on God's terms. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is an operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered into our disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code weakened as it always was by fractured human nature could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but could never deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never getting around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious and free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God and ends up thinking more about the self than God. That person ignores who God is and misses what he is doing. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who is not welcome to this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about, but for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, and surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from the dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be alive as Christ, So don't you see we don't own this old do-it-yourself life, one red cent. There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know that we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, we're going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait, isn't that true, for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. In fact, we are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in our waiting, because we will, and we do. God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't even matter, because he is praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. To wait is to delay action. To wait is to renew strength. I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit is stirring in you this morning as you sit under this scripture. But as I was preparing, there were a couple of images that came to mind that I felt I really needed to share this morning. Um, The first image that I saw was the image of a fallow field. In Exodus 23.10, it discusses the law of a sabbatical year prescribing one year of rest for every seven years of cultivated soil. Every seventh year, the fields were to be left fallow, left idle for a season after harrowing and ploughing so the weeds and insects are killed off and the soil regains its fertility. If a farmer continues to grow the same crop year after year in the same field, then the nutrients and minerals in that soil will be exhausted. In a fallow period, the land remains uncultivated. No planting, no tending or harvesting to let the soil replenish. There's a cost to the farmer in letting a field lie fallow. There's a loss of productivity and a loss of progress in that time. But following a fallow year the crop will be even more bountiful. As I held this image, I felt very much that it was an image for me, but also for some of you, that God is calling some of us into a fallow season, a time to wait, to renew our strength, a time when he is asking us to delay action, planting, tending, and harvesting, in order to see the soil of our lives replenished. He is doing this because he has a bountiful harvest in store. And he asks you this morning, will you trust him with what seems like a lack of progress and productivity? I did a little more research on farming and I discovered that modern farmers have another way of renewing the soil. They rotate crops, same field, different crop. So, if a farmer normally plants a cereal, he would plant a legume instead, and this rests the soil in the areas that it's depleted by drawing on different types of nutrients and minerals to grow the alternate crop. My sense is that some of you are entering a season of crop rotation, that the nutrients of your soil are depleted from repetition, familiarity, repeated exposure or boredom. And God is going to plant something different, something new in the soil of your life in this next season, which is going to renew your vitality, strength and fertility. Will you let go of the old and receive the new invitation that is coming to you? For some of you, though, this past time of COVID lockdown and isolation has been a time of increased pressure and demand, but for others, it's been a time of lying fallow. Where sowing and tending and harvesting all seemed to cease for a bit and where you found yourself slowing down, regaining energy, strength and creativity. And I felt to remind those of you this morning that what follows a fallow season isn't a harvest time, but a time of sowing seed. And the thing with sowing seed is you sow it, and then you have to do more waiting. You don't ever see a farmer sow a seed, and then next week just dig it up to see if it's growing yet. Instead, the farmer looks for and anticipates signs of a new crop that will soon push its way through the ground and need tending. What might God be asking you to plant and then wait as he brings the growth in the next season? You know, coming to the end of 2020, Some of us might be starting to think about 2021. I know I bought our big family calendar for next year this week. And I'm asking myself the question, how do we move into 2021 with intentionality when everything remains so uncertain around us? The prophets urge us to look beneath the external realities for the internal ones. I said a little while ago that God is doing a new thing now, but the seed of it has been inside of you all along. Last week, as Dave spoke, I was telling him this week that I felt like there was so much mantle in his message. And then as I started to think about our teaching and preaching team and I thought about what they've been speaking on this year, I could see for each one of them there's mantle in their messages. That actually the next thing God's doing in their lives has been in seed form in them all along. Actually, Bretto, I was thinking about you this morning, and um, I mean, I've worked with Brett for 20 years now, and I thought, you know, your mantle has been in your message this year. And I could see this mantle from way back when we first started together, a mantle of fostering unity, while championing and defending diversity and every now and and then re-ending conformity. It's been there for 20 years. The mantle is in the message. It's a new season. But the seed has been there all along. And as long as you're doing those three things next year, because I know there's 100 thoughts about what you should be doing next year at this time of year when you're leading the way that Brett is long as you're fostering unity while championing diversity and rear-ending conformity you'll be in God's place that you need to be but it's not just us that speak a message through the year each of you have messages attached to your lives what's been on your lips in your conversations what have you written in your journal what have you painted or taken photos of this year What's been stirring in your life, there you will find your wisdom, your mantle, your direction and your vision for the season to come. It doesn't matter how uncertain it is in the external, we can draw deep into the Spirit's work in our life. So as I just finish now, I want to encourage you as we head into the Advent season, as we head towards Christmas and towards the end of this crazy 2020, take the time to harvest. Be like the prophets. Look back and then look beyond and glean the wisdom for what is coming next. Let me pray. Thanks, Grant. God, you are so kind, but you are not tame. Your presence is tender, but it is powerful. And in our times of wilderness and exile and waiting, God, you are moving. You're in the waiting, you're in the message. God, would you give us eyes and ears to hear and see how your spirit is moving in us and in our community together that we might position ourselves for the season to come. We just wait upon you for a few minutes longer as we finish in worship together. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching. If you'd like to connect with us, make a financial gift, or find out more about Kingsway Churches, head to kingsway.org.au. Have a good one.